On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the late, legendary pastor and literary theological writer, Eugene Peterson. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. That's hilarious. All right, they're calling you. Hello. Oh, so this sadly, we're going to have to revert to that. So you go ahead and answer if you would. Hello. Hello, Pastor Peterson. Yes. This is Krista Tippett. Hi, Krista. I'm so glad to be on the phone with you, but I'm sorry it's the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's doing fine. Okay. Lily's doing just fine with it. Yeah. Well, Lily's a pro. If she couldn't make it work, then then we could not have uh, we could not have vanquished this technology. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She says Lily's a pro. (laughs) You've seen the reality of that. No. Um, do you have any questions for me before we begin? Uh, no, I don't know what we're doing. Okay, well, that's all right. I will take you by the hand and lead you where we're going. Okay. I just want you to <clears throat> to speak and think and reflect as you always do. Um, I've, I've been reading, I've, I've read you for a very long time, and in fact, I was really excited this morning. Um, I, I don't know why it hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me earlier, but to... Um, look on our bookshelves and find my copy of Answering God from when I was at Yale Divinity School in the early 90s. Okay. Yeah. So um, so I've spent um, a good amount of time these last few days acquainting myself with, um, you know, a lot, a lot of the sweep of your work. And, um, and so I'll just try to ask good questions that will elicit good answers. Okay. Okay. So, Chris, um, uh, do, you, do we need anything? Do we need... No? Should we just get going? Okay. All right. Um, is Lily happy at that end to proceed? Are you happy at this end to proceed? Proceed? Yes. Okay. Thumbs up. All right. Um, so I, <clears throat> I'd like to start by just asking you um, how you would start to describe the religious and spiritual background of your childhood. Um. <clears throat> I grew up in a very sectarian church, Pentecostal church, and uh, it was um, it was a small little church in the center of town. And uh, I guess what I would say is it was exciting. There was just mm. a lot of stuff going on, and funny people, queer people, and uh, I just um, it was going to church was an adventure. Yeah, right. And I, I don't think it had anything to do with the gospel, but um, it was it was a good place to be for a, a young person, teenager. Mm. So I had a positive relationship to the church. Um, it, it wasn't always I had to outgross a good bit of it, but it was um, it was easy to do. It was my parents were good parents and faithful and. Uh, no hypocrisy in them. Mm. So that's really where, and I didn't really get get outside of that until I went to university. Right. I, you've written, um, I, 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 or at least I, I, I gather in your writing that 
I think you wrote somewhere that the church you grew up in was less interested in this world than it was in spiritual matters. But that's true. But I sense that the you know just the Montana landscape for starters kind of formed you, began to form you differently, your your own spiritual imagination differently. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> we lived in the middle of this magnificent world, but we didn't. Uh, my parents didn't do much with it. Hmm. But when I was a young person, well, young, eight, nine, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I was within walking distance of a range of mountains. And I used, every Saturday I used to um, boil a couple of eggs and get some bacon and, and ride my bike to the, uh, to the slope of these mountains and spend the day um, looking for Indians and uh, looking for arrowheads and mm. I never found any of that stuff but it was I it didn't make any difference I was well populated with imagination yeah so I did have a grow up with a sense of uh, of the beauty of this place and the uh, and how uh, how unusual it was mm. but I did it pretty much on my own uh, as you just mentioned my parents were a lot more interested in heaven than in earth. So, but it didn't seem to hurt me. Yeah. What, um, I, I, I can't find in your writing, and perhaps I've missed it, but where were the roots of your love of language and the care you take with it, the reverence you have for its poetic possibilities? Where did that come in for you? I think, uh, I had a couple of teachers in high school who were who loved language and who taught me how to write, and uh, and I think a lot of it was just kind of happenstance. I I uh, I would find a poet and realize that uh, I love poets. Mm. I, th- I can put my finger on one one thing. We moved to Crosstown when I was about um, uh, maybe ten years old, and uh, and I had no friends, and I had a um, a Bible that I purchased with my own money, and uh, I started reading it because I had no friends, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and somebody told me that the Psalms were a good thing to read, so I started reading the Psalms, and I couldn't understand them. God is a rock. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, my tears are in your bottle. What is what is going on here? And uh, I just kind of struggled with that. And it, but people had told me it was important to read the Psalms. And about a month into that, I realized what they were. And uh, I didn't know the ner- term metaphor, um, but I, re- I realized what metaphors were. Yeah. And uh, so then so I was off, and the Psalms were my introduction to poetry. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, you, you, you were, you became a pastor. It doesn't sound like you were. Um, 
always destined for that. At one point, um, early on, you thought you would be a professor, but you you not only became a pastor, you became kind of a pastor's pastor, and and your writing has been so important to people's formation and. And and you know in your new in your in your most recent book you the pastor you write that you can't imagine now not having become that but but even that the resonance of that word in the world reading you now um, as well as the world of church um, is so radically um, shifted changed um, and so that's kind of what I want to I want to talk to you about I want to kind of draw out your spiritual imagination and your scriptural imagination and. And I want to kind of I want to kind of draw you out as a public theologian um, because I think that all of that speaks um, to the world we inhabit today, uh, even a world in which a lot of the context in which you grew up and in which you formulated your your ideas and your writings uh, is very different. Well, that's true. Uh, I. Uh... I think I became. I think I became a pastor um, when I was in graduate school, studying to be a professor, and uh, I was going to be a Hebrew and Greek professor, basically. And then I, uh, I got married, and uh, I went. We moved to White Plains. This is in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Moved to White Plains, and uh, they didn't pay me very much at the seminary. It was my own the seminary I graduated from, and so I, uh, I, uh, I had to have another job. So I got a job um, with with a pastor mm-hmm. who I respected. I really never had very high opinion of pastors, to tell you the truth. Uh, they'd come into our town and hunt and fish for a couple of years and then <laughs> go for a better, better place. And uh, so they were, you know, I liked them. They were fun, told good stories. Um, but there was nothing about God that had any kind of um, connection with my life. But when I got to this, um, and got to this White Plains Presbyterian Church, and uh, I never, I'd never known a real pastor, hmm. and this man was. And uh, and then I was teaching the seminary where I went. Anybody on sabbatical, the the new kid on the block got picked up his his um, course and taught it. And the first course I taught was the Book of Revelation. Right. <laughs> and uh, it was a great place to start. Yeah, I, well, well, I was. And, um, you know, I struggled through that, and I realized after a very short time that John of Patmos was a pastor. Mm. And uh, then I started reading the Revelation in a totally new way. I had help from one professor. Well, he wasn't a professor. He was dead, actually. and uh, But it was, he wrote a book on the Revelation, which just transformed my imagination when I realized that John was a pastor, was a um, poet. This was the first great poetry in the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that, then all that um, uh, meditative uh, 
oratory are, well, the, the images, the symbols, and everything started to fit. And I quit trying to literalize them and began to see what was going on. And then that, and here I was in New York City hmm. and uh, Babylon. <laughs> and, uh, right. right. I was, uh, I realized this is, this is a great place to be. <laughs> um, and uh, so I think that was, that was the transition between being a professor and a pastor. I suddenly, the classroom got very claustrophobic for me. Um, you know, there's nothing ambiguous about um, language. And uh, so I finally found myself living in a world which is outside the classroom. Mm. And, um, you know, there were divorces and suicides and runaway kids. And um, it was just, I never knew what was going to happen on any day of the week except Tuesday and Thursday when I taught my classes. Right. And suddenly I thought, you know, I think I've been a pastor all my life. These people just really um, just pulled the best out of me. And uh, so Jan, the woman I married, when I met her, uh, said that she had, since she'd been 14 years old, she'd been praying to marry a pastor. Mm -hmm. And I told her, there's no way I'm going to be a pastor. <laughs> so... <laughs> For two years, we uh, we knew each other, and um, and uh, and that's when that happened. And right. suddenly, I was a pastor, and she couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know um, what you said a minute ago about um, the the poetry, um, and you and you you very you 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 have actually also you are a writer, but also a tr a translator. Um, the message, your translation of the Bible is um, revered by um, so many people, different kinds of people from Bono, who recently interviewed you, to, uh, you know, one of one of our producers, Lily, actually, who, who's there, um, whose father was a pastor. And, yeah, she told me. Right? And from Colombia and used the message with his um, congregation of people whose first language was not English. Um, but what you what you said um, a minute ago about the the poetry of the text is even in many of the translations many of us grew up with not evident and and without that being evident um, even sometimes in the way it was laid out on the page and this is so clear in the way you write about this the language we then without that context we couldn't it wasn't possible to read it no that's true to understand it to inhabit it yeah. You know, all the, all the prophets were poets. And uh, if you don't know that, you, you, gotta, you try to literalize everything and uh, make shambles out of it. What, what, talk about what difference that makes, um, even to 21st century people reading the prophets or having an imagination about prophets. What difference does it make to know that they were poets? Well, it means you learn what the meaning of metaphor is. And uh, that you, you know, a metaphor is, is really a remarkable kind of formation because it both means what it says and what it doesn't say. Mm. And so those two things come together and it creates an imagination which is active. Mm. You're not trying to figure things out. You're trying to enter into what's there. 
So that's why I think uh, I had a wonderful introduction to um, to poetry when I was still at university, and uh, I wrote a column for the newspaper, and uh, I I started one um, column by saying this was duller than um, Chaucer or somebody else. And my professor called me and he said, Eugene, have you ever read Chaucer? <laughs> right. I said, well, no. Well, she said, she mm. took a book off the shelf and said, you take this and you read it and don't come back until you've read the whole thing. Mm. Well, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> he was a poet. Um, and uh, so that kind of turned me around and she became a very m- large influence on my life. Mm. One one thing you you wrote about poetry is that um, I'll just read this. It's wonderful language. Poets tell us what our eyes blurred with too much gawking and our ears dulled with too much chatter miss around and within us. Poets use words to drag us into the depth of reality itself. They really like this. Poetry grabs us by the jugular. Far from being cosmetic language, it is intestinal. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that. Yes, you did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, you know, I'm just I'm pressing on this a bit because I, um, I mean, actually, we discuss poetry, and I, I increasingly I have poets as conversation partners um, because one thing I experience is that modern people are starved for poetry and they don't know it that we need poetry, um, but at the same time, as you know. Um, Poetry is mm, it's kind of marginalized, at least uh, we think it's marginalized in, in, in modern culture. And so um, I, I, think that, that I think that really maybe even again right now in our time there's, a, there's an in, interest in the notion of prophets. Um, but I'm, I'm also just – I think you have a way of talking about what prophets bring us um, partly through their the, the particularity of their language, um, that shakes us out of our regular our usual categories of think, thinking and action. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's well. It's been important for me. I I would think it'd be important for anybody, but to find a few poets that really strike home to you. And uh, and then memorize them, hmm. uh, and you learn to listen to the the, the dynamics of their language, and uh, recognize things that uh, that you, if you're just looking at the words. Um, for me, uh, George Herbert has been one of those poets. Hmm. Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, Mary Oliver. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a lot of them, but uh, I memorize them because then I can, you know, the the music gets inside my head, hmm. and I'm I'm reading poetry without knowing I'm reading poetry. Uh, you talk, and then that helps with the, with the scriptures too. I, you know, I didn't realize when I did the message. Um, I didn't. I had no idea what I was doing. To tell you the truth, uh, I uh, I had a had a congregation of people who didn't read books, hmm. and um, 
So I started translating the Bible in their language, not knowing that I, what I was doing. And suddenly, um, they started paying attention to me in a way they never did before. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, so I think, and I see, I didn't call it poetry. If I had done that, they would have quit. <laughs> right. uh, I think people who use language have to be pretty subversive. Uh, and if they don't learn how to use language, I mean, we've got to, I don't know if you want to cross this out or not, but we've got a huge, huge um, thing going on in our country now, now which is which is despises language. Yeah. Donald Trump. What in the world is that? How can he get on television? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> who's who's paying his bills or what is that? Oh, I guess I get uh, poetic when I. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, actually, though, I, I, I mean. What I see that 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 there's a lot of the the worst of what's happening in the political sphere right now, though is is kind of an extreme version of a hmm, of the way we've been so careless with language. Oh, it is right in general. So I mean, there was this there's this line of yours, um, and I actually don't know can't remember where this came from, but you wrote, "We cannot be too careful about the words we use. We start out using them." And they end up using us. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think that's informed by your scriptural perspective, but it speaks very directly <gasps> to <laughs> profane realities. Yeah. How, how does that? I mean, say some more about how words—that power of words. That, and that power of words if we don't use them carefully enough. Well, the power of words, when they're used well, is, um, is multi-leveled. Most words have more than one meaning. meaning. Mm. And if you reduce words just to what you find in, in the newspaper, um, you've missed out on a whole chunk of human living. And if uh, this is where a poet helps us, uh, he trains our minds to hear stuff we didn't hear before, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what's quite wonderful about about having children. Uh, they sometimes use language in a kind of um, dis- they discover words, yeah, and uh, and they start using them in ways we never thought of doing, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's, uh, I think children in their pre-school days uh, have a lot to teach us about language. It's true also that as we watch our children um, acquire and master words, that power of words is very evident. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Something you said about prayer also strikes me as um, so. You know, it strikes me that when you when you talk about the power of words, the importance and care with them, it's not just speaking. 
It's also about reading. It's also about listening. You, you talk about if we pray without listening, we pray out of context. It seems to me the same thing kind of comes through about speaking. If we speak without listening, we speak out of context. And listening also doesn't accompany a lot of our public speech now. Yeah, yeah I think um, the listening business is... Uh, is the, is, the, is the part of prayer that gets most um, neglected. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have people who have taught me this, um, but uh, one of the best teachers uh, for me has been um, Karl Barth. Yes. And he, he's just adamant about when you pray, you don't ask God for things. You pray to listen. And then when you've listened, you can hear God speak and, and take you into paths you never thought about. But to, you know, in, especially in the evangelical world, um, most prayer is asking, uh, demanding, and, um, and then you, they, you know, you go away for two weeks, and he didn't answer my prayers. Yeah. Well, that's because you need to shut up yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, hold your tongue. You, you, you propose a, a quite a different relationship. I mean, you, you say God speaks to us our answers are our prayers. Mm-hmm. Does that not make sense? Yeah, no it does. It's just a, a it's a it's a quite a different way to it's a whole different way to entry point to thinking about what's happening in prayer mm-hmm. to you know, I even I think I think kind of a a Protestant western Protestant approach that's there that's been there in many churches for a while. Yeah, it's, uh, and that's one of the things that um, I think I liked about being a pastor mm. is the is the working through in conversations of this kind of um, reversal of what they're used to doing, mm. and uh, the the ability to make the transfer from. Asking to listening is really profound, hmm. but when it's when you start to do it, and it sometimes takes some coaching, some encouragement from a pastor or somebody else, uh, but it's so freeing. Hmm. Um, I remember a conversation I had when I was a pastor. I went to see a woman who's um, lonely. And uh, she was, she had a, I don't know what they call them, a hoop that you spread paper or cloth over and you're doing, working in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do they call those? Needlepoint or something like that? Or? Yeah, needlepoint, yeah. but yeah. The, there's a word for that hmm. thing you're holding. Anyway, 
she said to me, my life is just limp. Uh, I don't, I just need something to give me some definition. And she said, like this, hmm. this thing I have, mm-hmm. it's, it's, you can stretch it out tight and everything starts to fit. And uh, so I told her, um, let me get you one of those. And so I came back in a couple of days with a, with a uh, copy of the Psalms. Hmm. And I said, this is it. This is what you need. You just take one of these Psalms <laughs> uh, and just let your mind stretch around it and, uh, and see what happens. Don't try to read a lot of Psalms. Just take one, two, three, uh, whatever. And uh, it's amazing what that does. But a lot of pastors are too busy to do that kind of thing. You, you say that the, that the Psalms train us in the conversation with God that is prayer. Yeah. How, what is your practice of, I mean, so the, there is this very, this traditional practice in Christianity of praying the Psalms, just praying through the Psalms, and it's, it's what the monastics do. do. Do you have that kind of, have you had that kind of practice in your life? Or how, how do you work with the Psalms in your, in your personal um, spiritual life? Um, oh, it's, it's hard to talk about. Yeah, I get that. I get <laughs> because that. Because so much goes into it. Yeah. But for years, I have... The first thing in the morning, I have about an hour of just quiet and coffee. And, um, but I've picked seven psalms that I thought were kind of covered the waterfront of what's going on. And, um, and I memorized them. And I, I picked pretty long psalms, so I'd, I'd have to work at it. And so on, Sunday, I do Psalm 92, which is um, a psalm for the Sabbath. And, uh, and then I go to Psalm 68, which is kind of a it's, a, it's a collection of pieces of psalm from different kind of settings. But when you read through the whole thing, it's a pretty long psalm. Mm you realize all these things kind of fit together if you're paying attention. Um, and then for, that's, that's on Monday. On Tuesday, what, when you When you say all these things, do you mean all the, all the different moves, all the different moves that a psalm makes from yeah. praise to fury to yeah, desolation? Right. Is that what you mean? That, right, okay, right. Okay. They're not logically connected. Yeah. But with an imagination, they start to fit together. Mm. That's what I mean. Mm-hmm. And then Psalm 18 is is um, a psalm just full of metaphor, and you just you're just overwhelmed by all the ways in which you can reimagine God working in your life. And on and just I do seven of those, mm. and uh, but I've been doing that for years. And uh, 
So then <laughs> you want to know the whole story. Yeah. And I shut up. <laughs> and I just um, breathed deeply and for another 15, 20, 25 minutes just tried to empty myself of, of everything. But there's enough going on through that first entry that it's, it seeps into your imagination. And so you're, you're not really just emptying yourself. You're emptying yourself of a certain amount of clutter so that the, the words you really need to, need, need to know kind of fit in. I don't think it's a very good idea to give people a pattern to work with in prayer. Uh, we're all a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did that myself. I just figured out what I seemed possible to do, and I did it. Um, but uh, when I was a pastor, um, I would s- spend time with people, figuring out what to do. Helping them Helping find them their, to... whatever their their seven psalms might be. Or, That's right. Or the equivalent. Yeah. You know... One of the words that's important to you um, is honesty. Um, that the that the Psalms train us in honest prayer. Yeah. Uh, immerse us, as you say, in the stream of life as it is, wet and wild. And I, I think you know your books, um, and maybe especially answering God, but not just answering God, have uh, been part of the training of seminarians and theologians for for a few generations here and i think you know one of the things you you talk about is the that the that the honesty of the psalms that bringing every possible human everything human um before god uh which which even lectionaries i mean even official christian Texts have often shied away from or edited out. You know the cursing, the imprecatory psalms, <clears throat> the uh, the what are they? What's the other? The the scandalous, the the, the 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 beautiful psalm that we all know we can sing by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept. But that 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 also has a moment where it says, "Happy shall be he who takes." your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. That's right. But for you, that honesty um, about the human condition is absolutely at the heart of what is necessary about the Psalms. Yeah. It is. And how else do you get permission to do that? Except you have something that's in the Bible, it's inspired, it's been practiced, dealt with by people for thousands of years. Um, I was in conversation with, with um, Bono just two months ago. Yeah. And he was talking about, we were talking about the Psalms, and, and uh, he says, well, what do you do when you get angry? I'm not, I'm not quoting and I said, well, you've got to learn how to cuss without cussing. Um, and I think that's what the song like, like uh, the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept. 
um, we, there, there are ways in which you can ex- express your anger in a context which doesn't become mean. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the Psalms have always done. Not just the Psalms, but the stories. Yeah, the biblical stories. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that you will be aware of this too, that at this particular moment in history, there is some sense that um, that these kinds of passages and imagery in the Bible are part of what is dangerous about the Bible in the world. I think you, you know, here's something you say. I, I think you have a more sophisticated way of talking about what's going on and what it is what it is meant to work in us. I mean, you, you, you wrote, it's easy to be honest before God with our hallelujahs, somewhat more difficult with our hurts, nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our hates. But how, talk about what is redemptive and actually good for the world in people being able to bring the dark emotions of their hates before God. Well, um, I think people be, need to be given permission to do it, to find a language of hate, disappointment, uh, retaliation, um, and get that out. People who are repress all those emotions often get sick, uh, depressed. Uh, but there's a there's a Learning how to express our fears, our discomfort, our hate, if you will, uh, it's often very freeing. But some people are just so um, afraid to do it. You know, they might offend God. Well, they're not going to offend God. God has been through that plenty. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we can learn how to be honest with ourselves and with each other. Uh, I think that's one of the... Well, I'm talking personally now, but this is what I liked about being a pastor, is that it gives you a huge scope for honesty. Mm. And uh, you don't have to be nice, and you don't have to be mean. Um, You can... Take a person and, and be yourself uh, in all the contexts that uh, life brings into you. You know, people who, have, who lose their jobs, I mean, you can't just say to them, buck up and it'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's almost sacrilegious to do that. I think it is sacrilegious. There's plenty of suffering in the Bible that's, um, and I guess just... Jesus is probably the focus of all of that with uh, the rejections he felt in the cross, crucifixion. So is it your sense that if people can bring that before God, um, it, it, it actually, um, it, it's not... It's less dangerous um, 
as something that's in the world. Oh, yes. Oh, much less. And that's just kind of one of the mysterious things about <laughs> human beings in the world, isn't it? The mystery of us. It is, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's where art comes in, too. Hmm. Uh, the, the artists can sometimes bring out these feelings, perceptions, that, um, that we, we don't know how to do it ourselves. And, uh, and yet, if they're a good artist, they know what they're doing and they're honest, uh, they can be of great help. You know, you wrote in, in, this, in, in The Pastor, your new memoir, I think you spoke to the the kind of the phenomenon I'm talking about, which you you know we're talking about how the Psalms of the Hebrew Bible bring every human aspect into the light, even the worst. Yes. Um, but you said, and so that is a way of it. It brings up it. it, it so but you, one thing you've t you talk about crowds, and you said classically there are three ways in which humans try to find transcendence. Um, religious meaning through the ecstasy of alcohol and drugs, I mean, chemically induced uh, transcendence and, and um, recreational sex um, and through the ecstasy of crowds. And you said church leaders frequently warn against the drugs and the sex, but at least in America, almost never against the crowds. And there's something about the moment we inhabit, I think even globally, um, that that feels very resonant and uh, psychologically astute. Well, I think it's true. One of the huge elements of poverty in our church life these days is the popularity of the megachurch. Mm. Uh, that's, that's ecstasy with the crowd. And, you know, you think you're doing something really important, all these people there, but nobody knows anybody's name. Um, so I think that, and the church has promoted this. This is what makes me feel so, oh, angry, mm -hmm. <laughs> if, I might be, if I might be permitted to use that word. Um, but, the, but the poets... And the, well, the, the, and the writers that use writing as a way of conveying truth rather than just entertaining people. Uh, I used to, when I was, I was, I was a pastor, I used, I used to get a pile of books uh, the same book, like 10 or 20, 30 books, and buy them and put them in the narthex and ask people to pick it up and read it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some really great Christian writers who really keep you burrowed into the reality of your life, the world's life. Um, who, who would be in that pile? Um, 
my mind goes blank. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Charles Charles Dickens is one. Mm. And uh, I think I read all his books three or four times. Uh, yeah, and most people would not think of Charles Dickens as Christian reading. Uh, that's true, but he is. I mean, that's that's Christian reading if there ever was one. Yeah, say some more. Well, he he enters into the life of these poor people and uh, bad people and stupid people, and it makes them come alive. And you, mm. I'm never going to do that. You think. <laughs> And then you do, and then you know you did it. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Uh, uh, Walt Longren, uh, a friend of mine, is he's he's a great storyteller. Yeah. And uh, Wallace Stegner, I think, is one of the one of our most healthy uh, novelists. And uh, hmm. my wife and I, have, we, we often in the evenings we read a book aloud. And uh, I guess we've read Stegner's books aloud five or ten times. You know, again, I, that, I, I don't know that people would think of that as a book that would be in the back of a church. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, something else that you, I think, have given to generations of seminarians and Christian pastors is the the Psalms as a like that praying the Psalms is. Especially congregationally, not just congregationally, also privately, is um, t- takes you out of you know. As you said, you, you've said that the Psalms are that, that praying is. Um, you've actually said that prayer is technology. That t- but that prayers are tools, not for doing or getting, but for being and becoming. Um, but that there are these. There are lot, there's 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 violence and hatred in the Psalms that that as you're saying is a way to acknowledge that um, that's part of us too in a in a healthy way to acknowledge that and then there's there's a lot in the pra- in the in the in the Psalms about being persecuted and I think that uh, a lot of Western people in particular, you know, you you read those lines and they don't seem to pertain to us. But your insistence that, you know, that what the Psalms are doing is saying, this is a story you are in, that the larger human story we're in. And you say lines about persecution uh, with and for those for whom that is a pressing reality right now. That's true. I um, when I was translating uh, the message, uh, to tell you the truth, I didn't know what I was doing when I started out. Yeah. And uh, and then it just kind of grew and grew and grew and finally, you know, the uh, my publisher said I did I'd done the New Testament and he said you've got to do the Old Testament. And I thought I can't do that. Um, but then I thought, well, maybe I, 
because I really enjoyed it. I felt, you know, I felt alive discovering the poetry of, of, uh, of the Bible. And, uh, but they told me what books to translate. Uh, I guess the, they would get the popular ones first and then drag off to the end. Mm-hmm. Well, the last book I, I was given to do was Judges. And, um, you know, I hadn't read it for several years. And I started reading that, and it starts out okay, but then it ends up with rape and uh, yeah. terrible, terrible stuff, yeah. just just awful stuff. And I thought, oh, Lord, why did you give me this to end up on? Why not just one of the Hallelujah books? <laughs> and then I... When I realized what I was doing, I thought, you know, I need to do this more and more often than I have. Do the whole thing. Uh, and because uh, it's, it's, it's all about us and God. And, but it's not just nice things. No. Uh, so I have a new appreciation for judges mm. that um, I don't think will go away. What I I know this is a huge question, so so I'm just going to ask you to how you would start to answer it. You know what what do this the Psalms in particular, but also really this sweep of scripture that you've immersed in. What how do wh- who is the God they reveal? What is what are the qualities of that God? Uh. You know, I'm not sure that it's that's a good way to put the question. Okay, how would you put it? Uh, Let me just ask you, how has your sense of who God is evolved and nuanced and deepened across these years of being steeped in Scripture? Um, I, you know, I like... Uh, I like to read theologians, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, the person I mentioned earlier, um, Karl Barth. Yes. Um, he talks. Well, one of the things that is, gives everybody trouble is the Trinity. How do you how do you think about the Trinity? And people are doing all kinds of analogies and things, and trying to separate this and what's going on here and it's uh, mostly pretty um, uh, futile. Yeah, esoteric. Uh, but there was a there was a pastor. Uh, well, a, not a pastor. He was a monk in the seventh century. Um, who talked about? He used the word. Um, uh, Anyway, it's about a dance. It's a da- it's a round dance, hmm. and um, it slips in my mind right now. But I've got a story to tell you to let you know what it, what it is. Okay. Uh, he was talking. I mean, in the, in the that first hundred years of of a uh, thousand years of 
This was a big thing with the with the monks. Figure God out. Figure out what's going on. Right. right. Make right. a make a chart out of it. Um, and uh, he had this word for for a dance. It's a, like a circle dance, mm-hmm. and uh, that the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a dance. And uh, when I saw, when I read that a number of years ago now, I realized what was it, it kind of came up part of me because I was I was um, working in a church and uh, as a, kind of an overseer of a young people's group, uh, 2030 Club, they called it. And uh, all these people that were there, this was on West Park Presbyterian Church in New York City, um, were in, they were not New Yorkers. They were from someplace else. They were all, they were all actors, dancers, um, wanted to be on Broadway. And they were really, and they were, their jobs were uh, taxi drivers, uh, bookkeepers, um, anything they had to do to get a, make a living. And, um, but when they wanted just to have fun, uh, they would have a square dance. Right. And uh, so I grew up in square dance country. <laughs> and I thought I knew what square dancing was. But these, <laughs> these people were just, they'd get a, somebody with a fiddle and a collar and they'd start dancing and they'd go faster and faster and faster and faster. And, and pretty soon you couldn't, you couldn't pick out one person from another. They were just all blurred together. Except if somebody got out of line, their whole thing fell apart. Um, And I thought, you know, that's what the Trinity is. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't know who's who and what they're doing Mm. and how, Mm. but you've got to let them do it their own way. (laughs) And then every once in a while, somebody would reach out a hand and pull you into it. And now it's a square dance. Mm. Uh, And the Trinity becomes... A square dance. Well, that really helped me a lot because I quit f- trying to figure out who is who, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You don't know who's who, where, when. Um, so that's that saved me a lot of um, speculation. I just have a picture now. <laughs> <laughs> what, about, I, what about the qualities of God, the nature of God that come through in this this invitation to bring um, the whole human story into that conversation that is prayer? Well, I, th- I think the, uh, we have to come back to the incarnation, Jesus and God, and realize that there's a lot we don't know, but what we do know is good. Mm. We know Jesus raised, resurrection, suffering also, but, but a resurrection suffering. And uh, the, the thing that runs all through this is grace. God is a gracious God. 
He's not a judgmental God. And uh, if we can, if we can agree to be ignorant hmm. of some things and not have to have an answer to everything, we'd save ourselves a lot of trouble because the what we do know about God for sure is grace. And uh, the problem of evil is not something we're going to solve. Mm. But I think it has been solved. Uh, it has been solved. By, the, by Jesus, mm. by the crucifixion. Um, do you know the name uh, Hans von Balthasar? Yes. Well, he and, and Bart were good friends. They both lived in Switzerland toward the ends of their lives. And um, I love this, what, what um, Van Balthasar said. He said, I'm convinced that there is a hell. There is, there is, there is a hell. But I don't find anything in Scripture that says it's, it's, there's anybody in it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's pretty clever. Mm. As you have... Um as you have gone through your life and experience, oh. oh, sorry. Hello? We just fell apart here. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, Lisa was uh, sleeping and wasn't. <laughs> Lily was listening to you. Okay. <laughs> um, I kind of want to pick up on what you just said. Um, what, you know, at this stage in your life, like, what continues to perplex you? What do you not have answers for that you would like to have more answers for? What has surprised you, even as you've moved through anger and forgiveness and sadness and the things that go wrong in a human life? Well, you know, I don't... Yeah. I'm 83 years old now, and one of the things that's uh, that surprised me is uh, the lack of questions I have now. Mm. It's kind of like I've just entered into a world where uh, everything is going not the way I thought it would go. But the way it makes sense, hmm. um, I'm—I forget things a lot. I misplace things, and I used to get angry with myself. Uh, and I don't anymore. This is a, this is the way a lot of the world is living. This, yeah. <laughs> this time—just <laughs> enjoy it. Uh, so you've got to go look for your keys for half a dozen times before you find them. Uh, and having a family helps. You know, I've got three children and nine grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that. That puts you in a in a context where there's a lot, a lot to be appreciated and a lot to worry about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the worries don't um, crowd out the glories. 
But we've got to give ourselves permission to do that. Hmm. I just want to ask you two or three more questions. Okay. You're holding that phone. I wonder, once you wrote, people ask, how do you mature a spiritual life? And you said the one thing you do is you eliminate the word word spiritual. It's your life that's being matured. It's not part of your life. (laughs) But the word spiritual, much more than when you first became a pastor, is everywhere now. And I want to know how you hear that, respond to it, what you think of it. Oh, I think it's cheap. Hmm. you're You're taking something and putting a name on it, spiritual, which means it's defined. The whole world is spiritual, uh, and it's and the word spirit is wind, hmm. it's breath. Well, people are breathing all over the place. They're all spiritual beings, uh, but they, if you have a name for it, you can compartmentalize it, and uh, and that that just wrecks havoc with the whole thing. Uh, spirituality is, and that's why I don't like the word, because it's so easy to just say, well, he's such a spiritual person, she's such a spiritual person. Well, mm-hmm. nonsense. You are too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's, I guess that's where I think the church has a place, uh, which is maybe more important than it's ever been. But it's... Uh, done well, there is no spirituality <laughs> that you can define. Because it is in everything you do? That's right. Mm. And if you, don't, if you don't recognize that that's possible, you just subtract a whole part of your life. And uh, so I, th- I think that's those of us who are teachers, preachers, pastors, uh, we we don't do people any good by trying to make them more spiritual. Mm. Mm. You have always balanced in what I'm going to uh, inadequately call your spiritual life with <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> with with a very robust intellectual life, a love of ideas, uh, a love of the rigor of the text and the teachings. Mm -hmm. Has that been something you felt you had to balance? Has it been a creative tension? Um, And, you know, that also makes you different than the way a lot of people live with this part of their lives and, in fact, are equipped. People aren't really given the tools to live with this part of their lives with that rigor. Oh, I don't know. I, I just I've always loved books. I always loved good books. Yeah. Loved writers. Uh, it's not been a it hasn't been an effort for me. It hasn't been a discipline. Mm-hmm. It's been a <laughs> it's been a spirituality. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, contradicting yourself. <laughs> I I wonder. You've, you're 83. Uh, you know, I think, I think actually this last exchange just kind of pointed out the 
the complexity of dealing with words, even though they are so precious. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wonder if if other words, if words themselves, even the word God, become too small uh, after eighty three years of pondering, grappling with the immensity of the reality and who God might be. They do become too small, um, but uh, you know, if we could, <clears throat> you know, the word spirit in both Hebrew and Greek is wind. Yeah. So why don't we talk about wind? <laughs> um, because we kind of know what wind is, but spirit, how do you know what you're talking about? Becomes an abstraction, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you, does the word God feel too small to you at this point? Yeah. What do you do about that? I pretty much um, am very circumspect about using it. Yeah. What about the word Christianity? <laughs> oh, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, say just say a little bit about that. About that. Well, the people who use the word Christianity mostly are thinking of an institution. Uh, and uh, and that that's hard to get rid of. You know, most of us have have uh, negative influences about the church, certain churches, experiences we've had. Uh, and so why don't we just eliminate the word? Mm-hmm. Um, but how, of course, that's, you know. that's hard for people like me, who is part of so-called Christianity. Exactly. I mean, you... You... Your life and your and your writing is passionately interwoven with this this enterprise, this aspiration of church. That's true. So is that is that um, I, how do you? Um, is that something you kind of grapple with, uh, seeing very clearly what goes wrong with the institution? I mean, do you, do you feel like it, I, I'm wondering if what you, where you end up is that you, I know you love the text as much as ever, um, and the tradition I sense, but is that more separate for you than it used to be with church? Oh, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think really. We go to a small church. When I was a pastor of a congregation, people would leave and say, how do I pick a church? Yeah. And my usual question, my usual answer was, go to the closest church where you live and the smallest. Hmm. And if it doesn't, and if after six months this is not working, Go to the next smallest. <laughs> okay, so what is it about small rather than big? Uh, because you have to deal with people as they are. And uh, you've got to learn how to love them when they're not lovable. Mm. 
And uh, we go to a we go to a church now, which is I'm a Presbyterian, but it's a Lutheran church. Mm-hmm. It's the closest church. Mm-hmm. Well, it isn't really, but it's the closest church, which is. And um, most of the people are my age, and uh, our pastor's young, and he's a really good pastor. Um, but I don't go to church. I mean, I go there to be immersed in what I don't know about. Mm. And these people, mm. I mean, there's 80 people in church, and I don't, you know, I know some of them quite well. I grew up with many of them. Uh, I would just, it's, they still treat me like a little kid. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of refreshing. <laughs> uh, no, I think, I think the church shopping mentality is uh, very destructive. I don't mean you should just not pay any attention to what you're doing, but you know, there's there are a lot of good churches around. Mm-hmm. And but the church, we, there is the church, like every institution right now, is as an institution is having to kind of reconfigure. The ground is shaky. That's true. What's your, you know, how, how do you think, what is, do, do, do you feel, I don't want to ask you if you feel hopeful or fearful, but what, what is your, what, you know, what, what is the ground of your hope for the institution and how, you know, is it important to you that the institution stay with the shape it's had or how do you imagine it evolving? That's kind of enormous. Well, I'm not. Um, I tell you, what depresses me is is the mega church, because mm-hmm. <laughs> that just seems to me it's doing everything backwards. Um, but since I don't have a don't have a congregation, and we're a little bit isolated, uh, I have two or three, two or three, four people. Some of them, two or three together or a couples who come to me and just spend an afternoon mm-hmm. and talking. And they're all pastors of small churches. Right. Um, and, they're, and they're not discouraged. Mm. You know, they're happy to be with these people. And, but they need somebody to listen to them and understand what they're doing and that it's it's pretty important, and uh, I've never had somebody from the mega church call me up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you think do you think the future of the church, the even the faithfulness of the church, is smaller rather than bigger? Yeah, yeah. So when I just want to, I know we, I know I promised to finish, but when you said a minute ago, you have to love people, you have to love them even when they're unlovable. Are you saying that that in smaller communities, that work is more un, unavoidable, and and that's why you would choose a community where you could actually get to know the people? That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting because I think. A lot of people think about church as an experience they go to have rather than being part of a group of people. 
I'm not saying a large church is um, mm-hmm. impossible. I have a good friend who's pastor of a large church. I mean, not a multi-million church, but you know, mm-hmm. but they're they're a famous church in America, and they've always had really good pastors, good preachers. Yeah. I shouldn't say pastors. They've never had a pastor. And my friend went there, and he, we talked about this for a couple of years before he decided to do it. And uh, he went, and he's been there three or four years now. And he told me the other day, I <clears throat> he's not close by, but he's on, we on the telephone sometimes. And he said, I knew it was going to be hard coming here. Uh, I didn't know it was going to be this hard. Yeah. But these people have never had a pastor. Mm-hmm. And whenever I have a committee meeting, I always invite the committee to my home. And every time I do this, two or three of them say, I've never been in a pastor's home before. Right. Right. Well, I think that's just tragic. Right. Uh, and so they've never known a pastor. They've just known a pulpit. Hmm. Uh, and they, pre- they were good preachers. But that's... The preaching stopped right there. Right. That was it. Right. So, you've written that prayer matures into the practice of memory. Do you, do you know? I think that's from answering God. You, I wonder about reading somebody back a line that they wrote in 1989. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, because I've written books, not nearly as many as you, but I know that sometimes when people quote me the lines, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what I meant when I said that. <laughs> yeah, but that's it's, true. A, it's a wonderful sentence. Prayer matures into the practice of memory. And I, I wonder just as my final question, you know, is that, has that been true for you? And what does that look like? How does that unfold? And how, how has your prayer changed even as you pray the same psalms year after year? Oh, I think the answer is easy. Uh, I think I'm praying when I don't know I'm praying. It's it's entered into my subconscious, and so I f- I feel like um, I don't mean, I don't mean for this to sound quote spiritual, <laughs> but it is. It surprises me that. Uh, that, you know, something has been going on in me for years and years and years, which is uh, pretty much absorbed into my psyche now. And uh, it gives me hope. Uh, It gives me hope because, uh, you know, our politics in this country are not very swift right now. And uh, and yet, when I think about individuals I know, um, they're they're doing something. They're not discouraged. They're determined to do to do it right. And uh, and I feel like I'm a colleague with a lot of people who uh, are my companions in this business. Mm. Mm. And you're one of them. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, 
for all that you've done and for having this conversation with me. So this is it? I think this is it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Um, Unless you want to say something about how Karl Barth is a theological voice for the the year 2016. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's been a light to me. Yeah. uh, And part of it is because he's so willing to just live in the mystery. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to have answers to everything. And uh, and one of the one of the words he dislikes most is religion. Right. Um, because when you have a religion you've got it put together and you can explain it and do it. And he says most of what we're doing is not religion. It's it's Jesus and this that's God. Uh, living God, mm. incarnational God. So he just—he's um, a theologian who doesn't act like a theologian. You know, he had a little parish in Soffenville, Switzerland. It was his first church. He was there for ten years. Uh, there were about fifty people, fifty members. Mm. It was a small town of a thousand people or so. And he was there for 10 years. And I knew that when I started out being pastor of a church, which was not yet a church, um, a church, new church development. And that gave me a lot of hope, you know, because I had 40 people. And, <laughs> um, and then when he... Well, the, the, the war was going on. Right. You know, and that's... What's so it's helpful because the the context in which he was kind of create having this great new imagination and about the vitality of all this is we feel like we live in bleak global times and we do yeah. but they're not as bad as nineteen eighteen by probably any measure. That's true. When he when he left his congregation. Um, he was he was called to be a professor at uh, in Gerdingen, and uh, he just continued doing the same thing he'd been doing with his little church. Uh, he just he he tried to teach his students in the in, in the uh, university what he'd been doing himself, preaching, mm-hmm. preaching, mm-hmm. preaching the word of God, the word of God. And now, instead of using a pulpit, he's using a classroom. But what he does is doing the same thing. He's just, uh, his church dogmatics, I've got 14 volumes of yeah. my, and I think I might be the only Presbyterian pastor in the country that's read all through those <laughs> twice. Uh, very repetitive. He just goes over and over and over again, but he wants to just do the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so he's not trying to, you know, develop some kind of new um, theology. He's, he's trying to just bury himself in the text. Mm. And he did that for 50 years. Mm. 
think the re- one of the reasons I I glommed uh, on to him is he wrote, he wrote his um, his, uh, his uh, commentary on Galatians on uh, on um, on the scriptures his Romans commentary. Mm. Mm. And that was a breakthrough for him. Every every theologian in the country, including America, thought he was stupid. He was just going back over old, old stuff, and he uh, and he just kept at it. And uh, he wasn't trying to be innovative. Mm. He was just trying to stick to the truth of a living God. And uh, which is what he did mm. until he died. Well, I realized at one point that I was born the same year in which he wrote or published the Romans, mm. which was kind of the source of everything he did since. And uh, and he, the, the year before he died, he never came to America until the very end. And I was a I was a assistant pastor in White Plains, New York, when he came to Princeton. And um, so my senior pastor and I went, and we got there late, and there was no room left until somebody pointed to us behind the pulpit where he was preaching from. And so my Jan, my wife, and my pastor and me. Or there within we can touch him. <laughs> so I finally had a had a really good look at Karl Barth. <laughs> I think there's something um, spiritual about that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a great story. It makes me think we should do it. We should do a show on Bart. <laughs> well, you know, you have um, also made the text real for so many people uh, and fresh and alive so I hope I hope you I hope you know that and um, uh, and I, j- I just again want to thank you so much for doing this well thank you but I, I do know it and people have been very generous with me yeah okay well take care of Lily there for us and um, and we will uh, I'm just again I'm just so glad you did this thank you so much okay all right bye-bye <clears throat> bye